Where do you see yourself in five years' time? That's a, uh, that's a classic uh, interview question. So a man walks into the office, he takes a seat, and the interviewer asks him, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Uh, and the man says, uh, oh, I see myself as the manager of this office. A woman walks into the office, takes a seat, and the interviewer asks her, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Uh, and she answers, I see myself developing my own product range and bringing it to market. Uh, finally, a third person takes a seat, and the interviewer asks, where do you see yourself in five years' time? And they answer, in five years' time, I'm going to be a hypocrite. Now, surely no one has ever said that, right? Nobody tries to be a hypocrite. Nobody likes hypocrisy. And yet Jesus warned in his teaching, not just that some people are hypocrites, but that there are many hypocrites among people who claim to follow God. It's very easy to look Christian on the outside, but to be nothing like one on the inside. Very easy to be a hypocrite. And in this passage from Mark's Gospel this morning, Jesus is going to teach us what a true follower of God looks like, what an authentic Christian life looks like. And his aim is to help us to become like that. Five years from now, I want to be more like Jesus. I want my life to look more like what he says it should look like. Five years from now, I don't want to find out that I've just become a religious hypocrite. Because there are many of them. And Jesus says they will incur severe judgment. So spiritually speaking, where do you want to be in five years' time? Well, what Jesus has to say this morning is going to help us answer that question. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we've watched the Jewish ruling authorities send people to catch Jesus in his words. And they've been trying to publicly discredit him, to make it easier for them to arrest him, after which their ultimate aim is to kill him. And we've seen Jesus show not only that they're wrong, but warn them that they'll be judged. He symbolically cursed a fig tree which represented the temple and its leaders, and the tree withered and died. He overturned the tables in the temple and called the leaders there criminals. He compared them to rebellious tenants in a vineyard who the master will come and kill. He hasn't minced his words, and he'll warn of judgment again today. But before that comes an unexpected encounter. Throughout uh, Mark's Gospel, the teachers of the law, sometimes called the scribes, they've been hostile towards Jesus. They're, they're part of the group that wants to destroy him. But there's one scribe who seems to admire Jesus. Have a look down with me at chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel and verse uh, 28. If, uh, if you've closed your Bible, it's page 1018, 1018, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. It says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard Jesus and the Sadducees debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments, 
which is the most important? Well, Jesus gives two. First, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says there's no commandment greater than these. And they are both commands to love. Which means the greatest thing we can use our life for is not making money or having fun or being happy. It's love. The best possible way to live the ultimately successful life is a life of love. And the greatest thing we can love is God. There is no greater use for my heart than to use it to love God. There's no greater use for my mind than to use it to love God. There's no greater use for all my soul or all my strength than to use them to love God. He is so good that it is impossible to love him too much. He is worthy of all our love. He is worthy of our whole selves. And he is one. There's only one of him. And so he doesn't get his share of my heart, his share of my mind. He gets it all all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. It's not wasted on him. He is what our hearts and souls and minds were made for. Now that might sound like there's no room left then to love anyone else. But that's not how Jesus sees it. Obeying the first commandment to love God enables the second one of loving our neighbour. Think of it like this. If I love money more than God, then the danger is I'll use people to get money. If I want happiness more than I want God, then the danger is I use people to make me happy. But if I get my security and satisfaction and fulfillment from God, then I have no need to use anyone. Instead, I can love and serve them like God does. So these two commands to love alone could transform the world. They're more important than anything else. And the teacher of the law, he gets that. And he also gets that it has consequences for people who call themselves religious. Have a look with me at verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's the consequence. If these are the two greatest commands, 
then they're greater than all the worship going on around them at the temple where they were speaking. What matters most to God is not the rituals, not the priesthood, not the liturgy, not the sacrifices. It's love. And Jesus has already shown that the temple looks good with all the religious worship going on there, but that its leaders, far from loving God, are rebels who have opposed God by opposing his beloved son. And I think what that means for us today is that it's possible to look like a church with Bible readings, singing, sermons and prayers, and yet be a place where God's not really loved and where people are not really loved. And so not really be a church at all. The greatest commandment isn't that we look religious. We look like Christians. The greatest commandment is to be consumed with love for God that overflows to the world around me. Well, Jesus is pleased with the man's question and his response. So he says in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, he's not far because instead of opposing Jesus, he actually agrees with him. But he's not actually in the kingdom yet. Because to belong to the kingdom, you need to realise and believe that Jesus himself is actually the king. And so Jesus begins, for those who have ears to hear, to reveal a little more of who the king really is. Verse 35. While teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, meaning the king, is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? I'm going to explain that. To enter God's kingdom, people must put their trust in God's chosen king. But the sort of king they were looking for that they were taught to look for was a son of David, a merely human king who would rule over a national and political kingdom. And if that's what they're looking for, well, they could easily pass Jesus by, as many Jewish people have. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 to show that the teachers of the law weren't setting the right expectations. Psalm 110 was written by David, King David. And it may well have been used after that at the coronation of Israel's kings. You imagine perhaps a prophet or a priest uh, crowning the new monarch and standing and looking at the crowds and saying, so that the priest would be here, the monarch would be in his, on his throne and the priest would say to the crowds, the Lord God said to my Lord, the king, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But Jesus says, if David wrote this psalm, maybe it has another meaning. Imagine David himself as king reading the psalm. And he says, the Lord God, imagine him on his throne, right? And he reads it. The Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. 
Well, in that case, who is David's Lord? In ancient Israel, the highest person was King David, and above him was only God. And yet in this psalm, David mentions someone who is his Lord, and God is speaking to this person who is David's Lord. And it's to this Lord that he gives the throne at his right hand. And Jesus concludes this quotation from the psalm by saying that that Lord, that's the Christ. The Christ isn't merely a descendant of King David. He is King David's king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And if you read it like that, Psalm 110 should lead us to expect a king and a kingdom far greater than David's. If this teacher of the law is ever to enter God's kingdom, he needs to look not for an earthly king, but a heavenly one. Not for an enthronement in Jerusalem, but to the one who will shortly be enthroned in heaven. In other words, he needs to look to Jesus. So the teachers of the law were wrong about the Christ. But that's not all. They were also hypocrites. Verse 38. Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk about in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. What are the two great commands? Love your God with all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. But these teachers of the law love themselves and hate their neighbors. They love status. They love power. They love to be adulated and fawned over. These are the leading teachers of God's people, but all they love is themselves. And in private, they exploit the vulnerable, squeezing them for money. They may look religious and godly, but they're not, because they do not have love And so Jesus says they will be punished. And I think the warning here for today is is really for church leaders. It's a warning to me that I mustn't use my position here, the fact that people call me reverend, uh, my influence, to simply boost my ego, make myself feel good and live off your donations. That would make me a hypocrite. That's not where I want to be five years from now. But the warning, there is a warning also to all believers, which is don't fall for this. Don't be a Christian who loves the ceremony, loves the show, loves the traditions, but doesn't love God. Don't be a Christian who puffs up their minister, boasts about their wonderful church, but doesn't love their neighbor. Jesus tells the crowd to watch out for teachers like this because teachers like this lead people astray. Now, if everyone saw right through them, their hypocrisy wouldn't really be a problem. But hypocritical teachers produce hypocritical Christians. So watch out. We're not here to put on a religious show. We're here because God is so good. We're here because God is so worthy. We're here because he is the best and greatest object of our love, worthy of all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And because as we love him with all we've got, that love overflows to others. 
That's genuine Christianity. In five years' time, I want to be more deeply in love with God. I want to get rid of the idols in my heart, rid of uh, the lies in my mind. I want to stop wasting my strength on the wrong things and instead fill my heart and soul with God, fill my mind with knowledge of Him, use my strength to serve Him and make His name great and to be known as someone who loves others. That's what I want. What about you? Well, a little while later, Jesus went and sat by the place where offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. I remember going to uh, Brussels with Rebecca and we went on the TripAdvisor website to sort of find out what the top 10 things are for tourists to do in Brussels. And going to the treasury might have been one of those sort of top 10 tourist attractions in Jerusalem. Go and see the wealthy people pour thousands of coins into the coffers. As you sit there and watch, you think, wow, they must love God so much. Look at all the money they're giving. You're impressed by their magnificent displays of wealth. But Jesus isn't. He saw a poor widow, the sort of person he accused the teachers of the law of exploiting, a poor widow who hadn't been loved and looked after. He saw her putting in two tiny coins worth a fraction of a penny. Now the crowds, I guess they would have seen her and dismissed that contribution as worthless. But Jesus calls his disciples over and he speaks to them very solemnly. He's really serious. He says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Now, who, who are you more easily impressed by? If that had been you there, the wealthy or this poor widow? Jesus is impressed by her. And it's because of this. When you know and love God, you're not afraid to hold back. You're not afraid if loving him costs you. You're not afraid if the only person you have to rely on is him. Because you know he is good. And so whereas others might applaud the wealthy donors, Jesus sees men who are spiritually bankrupt. Whereas others might see a poor widow, Jesus sees a rich one, rich in devotion and love. And perhaps he sees something of himself as well, because it won't be long before he gives everything that he's got. The wealthy leaders of Jerusalem will put up the reward money and Jesus will lose his life. Jesus, like the widow, will look weak and poor, but he will pour out his life in rich and abundant love for his neighbours, in love even for his enemies, because he truly did love his Father with all his heart, all his soul all his mind and all his strength.
And that is why God raised him up and seated him at his right hand in heaven as Lord and judge of all the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you see through the hypocrisy to those really devoted to you. And so we pray for ourselves that you would be changing us, filling us with love for God like you had and love for our neighbours. Fill us with such a vision of the goodness and worthiness of God that we're not afraid to give all we have in love and service of him, of our friends, and of our enemies. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.